Well, good morning to you. Uh, if we have not uh, met before, my name is Matt Malloy, and I serve as one of the two pastors here on staff at Liberty Church. And um, good to be back uh, here, up here. I've been, in, I've been in the service most of the last several weeks, but not in the pulpit uh, for a little while now. So I'm grateful to be back. I'm also grateful that there are gifted teachers of the Word of God that can preach uh, that give, to give me a little bit of a time away from it. Um, so thankful for, for those who have, uh, have led and taught well uh, over these past few weeks. Pastor John, Casey Horvath, and then Scott Zeller uh, was with us last week. Uh, if you missed any of those, they continued in our series of the Rhythms of Grace. Uh, it will be well worth your time to go back and listen to the recordings of those uh, through our website or our app, however you might, you might listen to those. Um, but we are, if you can believe it or not, at the midway point of this Rhythms of Grace series. Uh, and so if you've got Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to be today. Uh, and if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles uh, that Dana mentioned just a moment ago, page 947 uh, is where you're going to find this morning's text. Uh, if you're new with us, if you've not been with us for this series, we're taking really a couple months and we're looking at these nine rhythms, these nine habits and pursuits that really uh, help us to answer this big question, what does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus Christ? What does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus? Uh, our aim in this series is that we as a community of people would be equipped uh, to both be faithful disciples of Jesus and to be part of making other disciples, as is our mandate. We heard Scott preach uh, from that last week in Matthew 28. Uh, to do that, to both be disciples and to help make disciples, we need a common framework. Uh, we need a common set of questions. And only then, only with this shared, these shared lenses, will we really be able to help and to encourage and to challenge each other as we are formed and form other people into followers of Christ. That's especially true for this rhythm that we are looking at today, which is the rhythm of bodily consecration bodily consecration. My bet is that if you looked at a list of these nine rhythms when we first were talking about this series and this, this paradigm shift and things we're going to pursue as a church together, if one of them were to stand out and to seem a little bit odd or maybe like, does that really have a place on this list? It was probably this one. Uh, this is an often missed, uh, often neglected aspect of discipleship. And as Christians, uh, we speak often about how God transforms our hearts. And we speak of, of offering God our hearts in worship. The question has to be, what, it, what of our bodies? We offer our hearts to God in worship. What of our bodies? Because bodies play a central role in worship. They play a central role in discipleship. At the same time, there are few other aspects of discipleship that immediately stir up the same kind of sense of either pride or despair like this one does. Self-righteousness or shame or a mixture of all of those things. There's an author named Paul Miller and he talks about what he calls the failure boasting chart. And that what he means when he says that is that we enter a room, uh, we enter a group of people and we immediately start to size one another up and figure out, well, who in this room am I superior to and who in this room am I inferior to? Because bodies are material and tangible and visible, nothing initiates comparisons like that, like the body does. You heard Nate even reference that a little while ago as he was leading us in liturgy. So you probably heard me this morning mention the word, or even Nate mentioned the word earlier, body or bodily, and you immediately became more self-conscious than you were before that. 
you, you sat up a little straighter. Uh, you thought about what you had eaten the last couple days. You thought about the last time you exercised or the last time you physically exerted yourself. You perhaps thought about sex. You thought about what you've used your hands and feet to do and where you've gone this week. You thought about uh, sickness or weakness that you've been experiencing or someone that you know and love has been experiencing. All of these things are rooted in, all of these things are related to a proper understanding and a proper utilization of our bodies. And if our pursuit of knowing and of following Jesus isn't affecting these things, and if as Christians we can't talk honestly about these things as we seek to both be and to make disciples, we're going to be neglecting massive aspects of what real life entails. And so if this is not already true, I hope it's already true, but if not, we always want Liberty Church to be a place where it's normal and good to have appropriate and healthy conversations about the body. For the body to not be this compartmentalized part of your life that you're forced to deal with in isolation, but one that is truly, because this is the reality, inseparable from the rest of your life in knowing and following after Jesus Christ. There are many passages in Scripture that we could look at this morning. There's one in Romans that really cements our paradigm for bodily consecration, and that is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord God, you have declared that your kingdom is among us. As we contemplate the body this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes to see it, that you would open our ears to hear it, that you would open our hearts to hold it, and that you would open our hands to serve it. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Two things uh, that we will consider together this morning in light of Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Our body's worth and our bodily worship. Our body's worth and our, bodies, our bodily worship. So first, our body's worth. Uh, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, then this will be a little bit of a review for you. But up to this point in this letter that the Apostle Paul is writing, he's been laying out this really beautiful and this really compelling case for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus Christ. How sin levels the playing field among all people. How through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God can be both completely just, completely righteous, and actually do something about sin, and at the very same moment be the justifier, the vindicator of those who put their faith in the work of Jesus. And how that means that then we, in light of that, can put sin to death. We don't need to be slaves to sin anymore. And how that means, in light of that, we get to be included in the family of God, adopted as heirs into God's family. And how in the mercy of God, this family is open to people of all heritage. It's not just for the descendants of Abraham's family anymore, but God has opened wide the doors by faith for all who will believe. 
chapter 11, Paul, Paul is building this beautiful and compelling case, and he just kind of gets overwhelmed in how amazing the good news of the gospel is, and it builds to this climax at the end of chapter 11, just before the verses we read today, where Paul erupts in this doxology, in this praise to God. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So we get to chapter 12 in these two verses that we're looking at today. And these first two verses of chapter 12 are really a hinge in the book of Romans. After articulating and expounding the gospel for so many chapters, Paul is now going to begin to trace out all of the implications and the directives for how we as Christians are to live in light of the good news of the gospel. So the word therefore in verse 1 carries a massive amount of weight behind it in Romans 12. Paul is saying that because of all of this, by all of these mercies of God, which I've been talking about for 11 chapters, now in light of that, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Two things that we need to grasp right from the get-go here in Romans chapter 12. One, this is why bodily consecration is a rhythm of grace. Because how we use our bodies is a response to the gospel. How we use our bodies is a response to the gospel. It is a response to the mercies of God. God has done all of this great work, and now, in light of that, we use our bodies a certain way. And then number two, it's really hard for us in our day to imagine the bombshell it would be to the original audience to have the human body elevated to this level of importance. That it would be the first thing that Paul would mention after using 11 chapters of his letter to talk about the good news of the gospel. The first implication is about the body. Why would that be such a bombshell? Because the prevailing view in the Mediterranean world in the first century was that physical material bodies either were deified, as Nate talked about before, or they had little to no value at all. As one New Testament scholar puts it, they were an embarrassing encumbrance in the view of many. And that was the best case scenario for certain views. Often they were thought of as tombs, physical tombs in which the human spirit was imprisoned. And so the pinnacle of existence was to leave behind your physical body and to live a purely spiritual life. Then all of a sudden, you have this rapidly growing sect of Christians emerging on the scene and claiming that the body has incredible worth, that the body is actually our living sacrifice, that it is, as Paul says here, holy, not dirty, not disgusting, not a prison, but holy and acceptable to God. This is not a, a new idea in the story of God. This is not a new truth that Paul was the first one to talk about. But it is a very important distinction for how the people of God esteem physical bodies. Other religions, other worldviews, and this is true historically and true in the present day, they either deify or disdain the body. That's the way that most other views in the world tend to, do, tend to, to esteem the body, either to deify or to disdain, either to see the body as ultimate or to see the body as ugly. But Christians are to see the body differently. Christians are to see the body as both a gift and a calling. A gift and a calling. So it's not something to worship. We don't worship our bodies. It's something to employ in worship. And it's not a prison to escape. It's not an embarrassing encumbrance. But it's something that in and of itself has incredible value. 
And I'm making an assumption this morning, but I don't want to go skip over that completely. Of course, the spiritual and the intangible and the immaterial has incredible value too. So verse two here talks about how we're transformed by the renewal of our mind, which like the spirit, the mind is this invisible, immaterial part of who we are. But because especially when we talk about the things of God and we talk about church, we tend to go more spiritual than we do physical. We tend to elevate the spiritual over the material. This morning, our focus is really on the worth of the body. And so I want you to see how this plays itself out through the word of God and how this is so prevalent throughout scripture. If we're going to esteem the body properly, if we're going to neither deify nor disdain, we really need to develop a very robust theology of the body and of the worth of the body. So trace this with me just briefly this morning through the redemptive story of God, through creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation. So, so first and foremost, our physical bodies have worth because they've been created by God. God created us not as disembodied spirits, but as physical beings. Genesis 2, chapter 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So as important as our soul is, it is not the only part of who we are. It's not the only part that's been created by God in the image of God. Our bodies are too. Fall. When humanity rebelled against God, And in all of the the years and years since that time, people do terrible things both to their bodies and with their bodies. Bodies are one of the primary means by which we rebel against God. Uh, We act, we speak in ways that are not God's design, are not God's intent. We hurt one another. We abuse one another. We steal from one another. We kill one another. All of these Radical abuses and then many less radical abuses of the body. So death and ailments of our physical bodies, the fact that our bodies weaken and decline as we age, these are all effects, consequences of humanity's rebellion against God, of the fall into sin. And as difficult as that is, as much as we might wrestle and struggle with the experience of that, I want you to consider this this morning that aging and death become powerful and inescapable reminders. They truly become embodied reminders that things are not the way that they're meant to be. Our aging, our physical ailments, the death of the people we love, and even as we approach our own death, that's an embodied reminder that things are not the way they're supposed to be, that, that humanity's rebellion against God was and is a big deal and was and is costly and that we need salvation, that we need redemption. There's a physical, tangible reminder built into our lives because of the fall. Now, the good news is this, and what I think serves as the strongest case for the worth of the physical body, God does not abandon the physical. God does not define salvation as escape from the physical. God redeems, and how does God do that? John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh. The word became flesh. If there's a stronger case for the worth of our bodies than the incarnation of Jesus Christ, I have not come across that anywhere. That God the Son, think about this, that God the Son, eternally existent, 
took on human flesh and was born, as we recite in the Apostle Creed, the Apostles' Creed, of a woman, of the Virgin Mary, and that he added to his complete and full divinity a complete and full humanity. This is one of the great mysteries of our faith. And yet, though it is a mystery how that works, it is the reality that cements the worth of the human body. That the way that God accomplished salvation, the way that God accomplished redemption was not to abandon physical creation, but to take on human flesh and dwell among us. Jesus' own body, and if this has never stood out to you before, when you start to read the New Testament, this will now jump out at you if you think about it with these lenses. Jesus' own physical body is central to our salvation. John chapter 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless before him. Hebrews 2, 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And lest we forget, Jesus' resurrection from the dead was a bodily resurrection. It was not just a spiritual reality. Jesus' body rose from the grave. And he appeared to the disciples and he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. He sat down and he ate breakfast with them. And Thomas put his finger in the wounds of his hand and in the wounds of his side. Jesus then ascended to the right hand of the Father and the disciples saw him do it in physical form. And so his whole person, fully God and fully man, now fully glorified, is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. That's creation, fall, and redemption. Lastly, restoration. Restoration. Jesus redeems and he repurposes our lives, including our bodies. So Jesus, during his own life and ministry, talked about how he was the temple of the Holy Spirit. His body was. And it would be torn down and rebuilt in three days. Now, the Spirit of God dwells in us. Under the old covenant, it was in the temple and the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. Now, the Spirit dwells in us. As it's been said, the temple now has legs. It exists in the people of God, in them, in their physical bodies. And we too will one day experience a resurrection and a new imperishable physical body. We read in Scripture that Jesus was the firstborn from among the dead. So we who look to him in faith will one day follow in turn. There'll be a complete restoration of the physical body that God created humanity with in the beginning, only now incorruptible and eternal. So instead of embodied rebellion, which is the natural state of our lives and our bodies apart from the work of Christ, instead of embodied rebellion, we can now embody obedience. We can now embody and use our bodies to advance the work of God in the world. And that's what Paul is building the case for here when he talks about our bodies as a living sacrifice. So these first two verses of Romans 12, they encapsulate so much in just a few brief words. This is the summary. By the mercies of God, your body has immense worth. It's a gift. It's been created by God. It's been redeemed by Christ. It's destined to be resurrected and restored. And by the mercies of God, your body is a calling. It's an opportunity 
to worship and to honor and to glorify God, to use your existence for things that actually matter. So second, let's talk about our bodily worship. If that's our body's worth, let's talk about our bodily worship. To be a a living sacrifice, that's the key phrase that kind of jumps out at most of us when we hear the words of Romans 12, 1 and 2. To be a living sacrifice is to use the entirety of your life, the entirety of who you are, which includes both body and soul, in devotion to the glory of God. And it's a living sacrifice because unlike the atoning once-for-all work of Jesus, and unlike all of the sacrificial animals of the Old Testament that pointed the way forward to Jesus, the way that most of us will give our lives, will offer up our lives, is not going to be in death, but will be actually living and living this way. Consider this this morning. In some ways, that's harder, is it not? In some ways, that's harder. In some ways, it'd be easier to die in one radical act of obedience in your 20s or in your 30s than to live a lifetime of sacrificial obedience into your 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, or even longer than that. And that's because the longer that you and I live on this earth, the more suffering and the more corruption that is caused by sin we are bound to experience. As Paul says in Philippians, and we read it together this morning in the words of encouragement, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says there that Jesus can and will be glorified in our body, whether by life or by death. There's a way to honor and glorify God in both. But in many ways, and that's what Paul was saying there, it's preferable and it's easier to die sooner and to go and be with Jesus. So if you really want to learn what it looks like to be a living sacrifice, here's what I'd say to you this morning. Learn it from those who have lived longer. Learn it from those who have lived longer than you have. Learn it from those who have been seeking to follow Jesus for decades, for more years than you have. And to those of you who are here in the room, in your 60s and 70s and 80s, and for whom that's true, I cannot express to you this morning how grateful I am that you are part of this church, that you are part of this church family. That is a true kindness of God. And it's actually not very typical for a young church plant that's pastored by two guys in their 30s to have and has a lot of young families and little kids running all over the place and yelling for tea in the morning. It's not common for a church at this stage and with this, the the leadership being this age, to have as many gray hairs in the room as we do here. And so if that's you, I want you to hear this from me really clearly this morning. You are needed and you are treasured here. You are, and I hope you feel that. I really do. I hope you feel that among the people of this church and in this room. Because it's one thing, and it's costly in its own right, to present our bodies to God as living sacrifices when we're younger. It is another cost entirely to continue presenting yourselves to God as a living sacrifice year after year and decade after decade. Discipleship, one of the shorthand definitions that Jesus offers of discipleships in the Gospels is that discipleship is to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to come after Jesus. And here's what's typical among Christians. All the young bucks, all the young does, 
flex their muscles and they say, no problem, I got this. Let me carry that, let me put that cross on my back and I'll go. But it's the wiser and it's the more aged among us that know from experience how heavy that cross is. And what it's actually like to carry that cross, not 10 feet in a, in a show of bravado, but in a true demonstration of strength to carry that cross 10,000 miles. So may the rest of us follow your example as you have followed Christ for that many years faithfully. And thank you for the example that you do give to us in this church by living that out. Now Paul here writes that our living sacrifices are holy and acceptable to God. And this is where we get the word consecration in the phrase bodily consecration. To consecrate something is to set it apart as sacred. It's to set something apart as sacred. So we use that word when we come to this table and we look at these elements of bread and wine. We consecrate them from their ordinary and normal use when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We use that word for the ordination of officers and other leaders in the church set apart for service to God. And in light of this text, we can use that word, we should use that word for our physical bodies. So in response to the work of Jesus, our bodies are consecrated. They are set apart for the worship of God. Our bodies are sacred. They become a primary means by which we experience and then pass on the grace of God. They are also, as verse 2 says here in Romans 12, set apart from conformity to the patterns of this world. Or in your translation, it might say the patterns of this age. And when the New Testament refers to the world or this age, that's a shorthand way of referring to, as one author sums it up, the sin-dominated, death-producing realm in which all people, to which all people naturally belong. The sin-dominated, death-producing realm to which all people naturally belong. As those who, in response to the mercies of God, have our bodies consecrated, we are and we must always be nonconformists in that realm of the world. We must always esteem our bodies. We must always employ our bodies differently than those who are not presenting themselves as a living sacrifice to God. And there are a number of patterns of this world, of this age, that we should not be conformed to when it comes to the body. Escapism, just like in the first century, seeing the body as a prison to escape. Stoicism, which is being indifferent and callous to pleasure and pain. Narcissism, which is being completely selfish and self-absorbed, including the way that we think about and use our bodies. Asceticism, which is where we reject and resist all desire and all indulgence. We essentially lean into and pursue pain and suffering rather than look at anything as a gift from God. Or hedonism, which is kind of the reverse of that, where we embrace all desire and indulgence. We pursue anything and everything we want to because it's going to feel good for at least this moment. So we have to ask the question together this morning, what does bodily consecration entail? What does that actually look like? There are thousands upon thousands of specific implications. And what Paul is doing here in these first couple of verses is offering a summary. And he's saying here, be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may discern the will of God. He's saying, be so completely renewed that you will know how to use your bodies, how to live, how to speak, how to act in any given circumstance or in any given moment. 
He goes on through the rest of the letter to trace out several of the implications. But for this morning, and really as, a, as an introduction to this rhythm of bodily consecration, I just want to offer a few practical implications and examples for what bodily consecration, what our bodily worship looks like. So for one, bodily consecration entails, it, it, what it does is it, it injects, it gives deep meaning and purpose into otherwise mundane actions in the course of our lives. So if our bodies are presented to God as living sacrifices, if our bodies are consecrated to God, then gathered worship on Sundays, as important and central as that is, is not the only or even the most important hour of the week. And simply by living your life in and among this realm that has a corrupted understanding and corrupted practices of the body, you are bringing honor and glory to God and you're proclaiming the worth of God and that there's a better way according to the design and will of God. Are you aware of that? Are you conscious of how any given moment of your life, not just when you're gathered with other Christians, but any given moment of your life is an act of physical worship if you're devoted to God? Every time you shake a hand or give a hug or change a diaper or prepare a meal, conscious of the gift of your body, conscious of the calling of your body, that is an act of worship to God. Bodily consecration also entails what we consume, what we take into our bodies. So what we eat and what we drink matters. What we consume affects so much of our lives. It affects our energy levels. Uh, it affects our sleep. It affects our overall health. It even affects our life expectancy. So presenting our bodies to God means that we have an appropriate understanding of what healthy consumption is. And what that means, according to the design and purposes of God, is that we are both people of feasting and of fasting. Feasting and fasting. We're all better at one of those naturally. So which one is that for you? Probably have a good mix in the room of both. Um, good food and good drink, they are gifts of God. They are meant to be enjoyed. And throughout scripture, there are days and there are seasons of feasting where you are supposed to indulge. You're supposed to eat and to drink lavishly beyond what's merely necessary to sustain life. If that's hard for you, then what I would say to you this morning is learn to partake, learn to see feasting for what it is. It is the kindness and grace of a good God providing for you and saying, taste of my good gifts. This is a glimpse and a foretaste of the kingdom of God. On the other hand, throughout scripture, we also read about days and seasons of fasting where we abstain, where we forego, where we remember through that abstinence our dependence and that God must be the one who provides for us. So if, if we're always indulging in food and drink, make a plan to fast. Make a plan to fast. And not just because there's a cool new dieting technique and you want to lose a few pounds. Make a plan to fast because your body truly is sacred and it's a living sacrifice to God. Be a person who embraces both feasting and fasting. Bodily consecration also entails exercise. We discipline our bodies, not only in what we consume, but in our exertions. Like food, exercise uh, and our physical appearance, they can become gods in their own right. And in our culture, this is certainly so. These are idols of our culture. 
But we can also react and swing the pendulum hard the other way as Christians and, and become poor stewards of our physical bodies. And we can allow our bodies to unnecessarily slip into disuse and weakness and the other ailments that come from that. When it comes to the body, and this is particularly true about food and exercise, what we often do as Christians is that we compartmentalize. We think that worship and godliness is something of the spiritual realm. That diet and exercise, that's something that's kind of important, but it's tangential. It's not really related to these other pursuits of worship and of godliness. The worth of our bodies, though, what Paul is saying here in Romans 12, the consecration of our bodies means there's no separate compartment. There's no separate compartment. Our bodies belong to God. And in response to his mercy, we do everything we can to pursue physical health in those bodies we've been given by God so that we might present them back to God over and over again as a living sacrifice. Bodily consecration also entails both rest and work. Pastor John preached about Sabbath a few weeks back. Physical rest is an act of worship. It's meant to be an act of worship. And in the spiritual sense, it's an act of dependence. It's a reminder that God is the one who works and God is the one who sustains the universe, not us. Work is also an act of worship. It's part of how we image God. God is one who works. God is one who rests. We image him by both the way that we work and the way that we rest. But work and rest are also critical from this physical material perspective. CNN published an article a couple weeks ago that highlighted the detrimental effects of both too little sleep and too much sleep. So some of us are prone to too little sleep. Uh, maybe that's just because you stay up too long, you don't sleep enough. Maybe that's because you try to do too much in a day, you're prone to overwork, and so you don't sleep enough. And according to this study, as many studies over the years have shown, that makes you susceptible to heart problems, to weight problems, to anxiety, to depression. Others of us are prone to sleep too much or too much leisure or too much rest. And in this particular study, those who were termed the long sleepers, because that's the polite way of referring to that in the study, the long sleepers were significantly more likely to have psychiatric diseases and a greater body mass index, or BMI, than those who did not. So there's errors here on both sides. Too much work, too much rest. The science is just confirming what we've seen play out in the design and rhythms of God, that we are people who are meant to work and people who are meant to rest. Now, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of questions about the specific number of the study, so I'll just tell you, but take it with the qualifier. This is a general number and that health reasons can change that. The study concluded that right around seven hours a night was the median amount that says this is about the appropriate amount of sleep for the average person. The last one I'll talk about this morning, bodily consecration also entails our sexuality. And we'll have a chance to consider that more in depth later on in the summer. But like all of these other implications that you, you're, hopefully you're hearing this pattern, bodily consecration in terms of sexuality involves both restraint and expression. It involves both. There are many forms, there are many instances of sexual immorality, what scripture de describes as misuses or misdeeds of the body. And where patterns in our culture, in our world, are generally speaking today all about free expression. Do whatever it is that you would like to do whenever you would like, so long as the other people are into it too. Nonconformity to the patterns of this world will very often for you and I mean restraint. 
But think about this. Within the design of God, the good design of God, and specifically the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife, too much restraint is also called a misuse of the body. And in all of these other facets of our lives, faithful discipleship involves both putting sin to death and stepping into life. It's not just putting sin to death. It's putting sin to death and stepping into life. And as Paul has already written in this letter in Romans 6, don't present your bodies to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Do present them to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Now in the realm of sexuality, not enough Christians or churches talk about that part. They talk about putting the misuse and misdeeds to death, not about actually stepping into the good design of God. And so without any desire to sensationalize this, let me just say this, that married Christian couples should have the best sex lives. Married Christian couples should have the best sex lives. They should have a sex life with the freedom from the guilt and shame and the abuses that are so prevalent according to the patterns of the world. And what a hyper-sexualized culture has to offer pales in comparison to the enjoyment of sex as a consecrated, sacred, physical, and spiritual act of worship. It is part of, definitely, don't miss this, part of what it means to live our lives in physical bodies as a living sacrifice to God. If you're married, and that's not your experience, let me say two things to you. You're not the only one, by any means. And number two, I beg you, do not isolate yourself in that aspect of your life. Because that's what tends to happen in Christian circles and Christian churches. It's embarrassing to talk about that part of it. So we'll talk about putting the sexual immorality to death. We won't actually talk about how to enjoy sex in the place and design that God has intended it for. So find other Christians that you can talk to about that in appropriate ways. Pursue health in that aspect of your life. Bodily consecration is never just abstaining from evil. It is enjoying the good. As you're hearing all of this, bodily consecration entails so much. And we could talk about this for hours and hours. In time, as a church family, we will. We will. We'll get there. For today, though, I will count it time well spent this morning if during these moments you've been brought to consider the value of the physical body, your physical body, and the opportunity that our bodies afford to live this life of living sacrifices to God, the gift and the calling that our body is. As the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, God has created us, both body and soul, and in life and in death, we belong to him. We belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So sin has, and it continues to wreak havoc. Sin continues to wreak hell on how we esteem and how we employ our bodies. But by taking on human flesh, by sharing in our likeness, by rising from the grave in physical bodily form, God the Son has forever cemented the worth of your body. And therefore, by the mercies of God, may you present your immensely valuable bodies as living sacrifices to God. Don't worship your body. Worship God with your body. Don't despise or disdain your body. Despise the corruptions of the body and what the body is truly meant for and fight back against those corruptions by living an embodied life of worship, by presenting your bodies to God as instruments for righteousness. 
And I'll close with a quote that is attributed to a woman named Teresa of Avila, Catholic thinker and author in the 16th century. She says this, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Amen. And pray for us. Lord God, you have made us for yourself, and that includes both our soul and our body. And as we offer up our hearts, we pray that we would be people who offer up our bodies. We pray that you would help break down the walls that compartmentalize these things in our lives. We pray that you would help us as we take up our cross to follow Jesus, that our physical body would be part of that, would be central to that, that we would understand and esteem the worth of the body, the gift that it is, the calling that it is to have a physical body. And we pray we would use our bodies in a way that honor and glorify you and in a way that truly proclaims to the world the value and worth of knowing and following Christ. And as we think about the need to be discipled, to grow in this aspect of our life, thank you that when we come to gather in worship, the central act of that worship each week is a physical, tangible act that commemorates, that anticipates the physical, tangible body of Christ that was broken for us, that was blood that was poured out for us, that it was in your flesh, Jesus, that you accomplished our salvation and redemption. May we see that cost. May we see that it has been paid. May that stir up in us the true reminder that our bodies are worthwhile and instruments of worship to you. We pray this all in your name. Amen.